When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What makes life meaningful and worth living? Well, the field of positive psychology and Emily Estefani Smith tries to answer that question here today. Emily's the author of The Power of Meaning, Crafting a Life That Matters, and did a TED Talk back in 2017 called There's More to Life Than Being Happy. The TED Talk went absolutely viral. I think I saw it on the airplane scrolling through LinkedIn. (laughs) She tells us, though, why, despite what is a better world that we live in, a better macro world that we live in, safer, wealthier, cleaner, we live in a society as a whole that has more despair and loneliness and depression. Much of that stems from a lack of meaning. Where did all the meaning go? And how can you do a better job of finding meaning or having a deeper meaning in your life? We'll answer those questions today by using Emily's five pillars of meaning. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. Emily Esfahani Smith, it's been, it took me a long time to track you down, but I feel like many of our listeners have also probably seen your TED Talk because it went viral. I don't know if it was viral is the right word. It just it was just an amazing talk. And your book, The Power of Meaning, it's just, it kind of just has, it's been translated into 100 languages. Uh, so I think our audience might know you for that, The Power of Meaning. I found you through a TED Talk, which was amazing. Um, and then you just had a, you just had a baby, like literally <laughs> a couple weeks ago. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, it's been an exciting new time, new chapter for my husband and I. Well, congratulations! Because, and I know that if if Mark, who's your six year old, gets a little fussy, mm-hmm. um, I believe me, I have four of them, so oh, I know, know how to weave in and out of people, <laughs> babies crying and dogs barking and all of that. So I, I'm totally yeah. with you. But we're here to talk about your. And, and you studied something called I, positive psychology was one of your degrees, correct? Positive psychology? That's right. Yeah, I got a master's degree in positive psychology uh, in 2013, I think. Yeah. This was at Penn? Yeah. Or it was Dartmouth? At, it was at it was Penn, a, um, okay. where uh, Martin Seligman, who kind of is a leader and, and one of the co-founders of positive psychology, the subfield um, that's really taken off in the last 20 years, he... Um, he and some others started a positive psychology master's program at Penn. And so um, that's where I, that's when I heard that there was a, a, a place that I could study it more formally and that it was, you know, people like 
Seligman were teaching in it, I was like, I need to go to this. Um, so it was a really wonderful experience. I literally want to go get a degree in positive psychology. <laughs> what is it? What is? Tell me what exactly what it is. So, so um, the the story that you know Seligman tells is he was president of the APA, the American Psychological Association, kind of the big, you know, the big psychology group. And, you know, as as president, he, you know, he, he wanted to kind of set some kind of, you know, mandate for the field. And one of the, the things that he began to notice was that psychology had become so focused on the negative. So how you, you know, treat depression and anxiety and why people become depressed and, you know, psychosis and what causes that and what treats it, um, you know, dealing with the negative side of human experience and not at all with the positive side, you know, with things like how do you have healthy relationships? What makes people happy? How can we lead meaningful lives? And so um, he kind of issued this call to arms to the field saying, you know, let's let's focus on, you know, and create a positive psychology and, and do research around that so we can really understand and help people figure out what makes life worth living. So the field is kind of devoted to these bigger questions of, of meaning and happiness and, you know, creativity, all of the things that we think about when we think of like a fulfilling and fulfilled life. And again, it just hasn't had, so 95% of all the effort in psychology is to how to treat Mm -hmm. all of the issues, depression, anxiety, all of these other psychological issues, and, and so much less about kind of the mechanisms that help us evolve to a happier state. And then, and this is an, in so, I guess, to some extent, an emerging field, but you studied this at Penn. Mm -hmm. Did the research you did there then all of a sudden kind of, was it almost an awakening for you? And then you said, oh, I, I should probably write a book on this. Yeah, I would say that there were two kind of key moments. One was when I first learned of the field of positive psychology, because I had, I'd studied philosophy in college, hoping to kind of study these, these bigger questions of what makes life meaningful, what makes life worth living. And philosophy has, you know, traditionally been the field that deals with those questions, but for a variety of reasons has kind of, you know, relinquished that. Um, and, and what I didn't realize when I was in, in college was that those questions have been, you know, that psychology and positive psychology in particular have taken those questions up. And so um, once I learned about positive psychology, just through, you know, re reading books on my own, I, that was, that was my initial wake up call. Like, oh my God, this, people are actually studying these questions in a serious way. They're doing empirical research on these questions. Um, and, and that's so exciting. That's exactly what I want to be studying and thinking about. And then, um, so I went to the program. And then when I got to the program, there was the second wake up call around what I was learning there. And in particular about this tension. Um, that exists between living a happy life and living a meaningful life. Um, the two aren't always in opposition to each other, of course, but they, they can be. And, and that idea that a meaningful life and a happy life are two different things really resonated with me because I'd never thought of it like that before. In our culture, there's so much emphasis on happiness and leading a happy life that I just assume that, you know, that's what we all want. Um, but then when I learned that there's this whole other way of thinking about having a good life, which is around meaning, which is defined as connecting and contributing to something bigger than yourself and not just seeking the things that make you feel good, um, but kind of doing things that are, are worthwhile and, and make the world a better place and that fulfill you in a deep way. Um, it seemed to me that, well, actually what, what people might 
be more interested in is, is meaning, but they don't have kind of the vocabulary around, you know, th- that type of life and don't might not know how to pursue leading that kind of life. How do you actually bring meaning into your life? Well, I think that that is what has struck me so much about when hearing your talk and then reading your work is that you you, you make a very, very good point. And, and again, I, here I am an author that has studied this under the guise of the word happiness. And again, I did a book seven, eight years ago that was essentially five secrets of the happiest retirees. It was about early retirement. Mm-hmm. And then I did a, the last you know, seven, eight years more research on that, trying to just find habits, consumer habits, lifestyle habits, family habits, social habits, and financial habits. And weave all that together and try to identify what the happy group does versus the unhappy group. Mm. But 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 the word happiness in, in my book is literally titled What the Happiest Retirees Know. And this mm-hmm. is why I so much wanted to talk to you about this, is that it is much de- it, it is so much deeper than that, Emily, as you studied. Um, I think you're right. In the world we live in, happiness is like a is kind of a buzzy buzzword, and it's a blanket here. I'm I'm trashing my own book title, but it is it's a very umbrella type word, and and there uh, and it can be surfacey. And, and what you've done is kind of get to the deeper part of it, and that's why I wanted to ask you about. It. So first of all, you grew up in this Sufi community. So first, that kind of struck me. Mm. First of all, my favorite. I don't know if there's any – so first of all, tell me what Sufi is. Tell me what the, the br- upbringing yeah. of Sufi life is. Yeah, so Sufism is this um, mystical, spiritual path that's associated with Islam. Um, it you know grew up in the Middle East. The poet Rumi was a Sufi. He's kind of a cultural touch point for, for a lot of people. Uh, the whirling dervishes are Sufis. So um, – so, you know, a, a large, I think one way that I think it's helpful to think about Sufism is that it's a lot like Buddhism in, in, in terms of its practice. So meditation lies at the center of the practice. Um, so, so does, you know, kind of seeking to live a life of loving kindness. Um, service is an important part of, of the practice as well. Um, so, you know, these, these different ways that to kind of come into contact with you know, God, you know, is, is how Sufis would think about it. And you do that by meditating and being loving towards others and things like that. And so living in the meeting house meant that it was like living in a meditation center, um, tw- you know, twice a week on Thursday nights and Sunday nights, people would come over and, um, you know, sit on this, on the floor in a large room and meditate for several hours. And, you know, they're really, um, just kind of warm, warm-hearted, you know, wonderful people that I spent my early childhood growing up around, and it left an impression on me. And you know, these were people who who were devoted to kind of you know leading a meaningful life. They were seekers, seekers of meaning. And I have to think that a large part of why I grew up and and ended up being drawn to this topic to study and write about is because of the experiences I had uh, in, in the meeting house. So most people are, when they go to college, they're partying and they're, they're not thinking, they're long, long before they start really thinking about the meaning of life mm-hmm. and happiness. And you were thinking about this because you, I guess you grew up with this. Yeah, I think extent. so. I think that's, that's a big part of it. And I think some, you know, some people, even from a young age are, you know, have something in them that is, you know, seeking and they're maybe a little bit more introverted. And that was definitely me. Um, so yeah, I, when I got to college, I, you know, went to the philosophy department hoping that that's where I could study these questions further. But like I said, it's not, you know, that's not what philosophy is doing so much anymore. So Sufism if it weren't for Sufism, you may not have been thinking about all of these things. Is that correct? And is in is Sufism 
Is it more of a religion or a, a sector of religion? Mm-hmm. Almost like Quaker is to mm-hmm. Christianity as Sufism as is to what Islam or. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's that's a really nice analogy. So the um, in in Sufism, there are many different Sufi orders. Like you can think of different you know orders uh, of monasticism within Catholicism, or different you know forms of Protestantism, um, and different orders are you know um, more religious, and others are more spiritual. Others are much more close to Islam and kind of the. Um, you know, the uh, abiding by the principles of Islam, others have a looser affiliation. And so the particular order that my parents belonged to in the Sufi meeting house was, um, was, I would definitely say more of a spiritual uh, version of, of Sufism. And so, yes, like, you know, Quaker is, you know, Qu- I think Quaker is a good analogy, actually, kind of c- coming to a place, sitting quietly. Um, yeah. And I only say that because when, when I was, when I was younger, my, we were, I guess if you had to say which religion we were, we were Quaker. Mm-hmm. And I would go to like a Quaker meeting house and mm-hmm. we would sit there and we would be quiet. And maybe that's why of an early age, I'm same thing. I'm always wondering yeah. like, what's the, the tie between money and happiness? Mm-hmm. Like as a kid, I don't know what the, so, but let me go. So it is no coincidence. I didn't want to put my foot in my mouth on mm-hmm. this one, but now that I, from one thing you said, I know this now to be true is that I have two of my very favorite places in Atlanta to go eat. Mm-hmm. And one of them is named Sufis. Oh, wow. And, and one and I and when I and I've thought about you going to Sufis. I was just there yesterday and I was like, I wonder if this Sufis has anything to do with Emily's Sufism. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, that can't be right. And then you just said the cut some sort of cousin or of, of Rumi. Mm-hmm. And my and my number one favorite restaurant in Atlanta is called Rumi's. Oh wow. And somebody yesterday asked me, they're like, well is that the same one over and I said, no, Rumi's and Sufis are cousins. <laughs> they're the best restaurants and they're Mediterranean food in all the city of Atlanta. And they're both amazing. And they're clearly have to do something with Sufism. Yeah, it, it sounds like it. Well <laughs> I have to check them out when I'm in Atlanta next time. Rumi's and Sufis. You grew up thinking about this, and then you ended up doing this. There's this meaning crisis, let's say, in our lives. Mm-hmm. And did you think that has that coincided with your research? And then I want to get to your four pillars. I love mm-hmm. your four pillars. Mm-hmm. So let's maybe first think about happiness. Maybe doesn't fully get to the meaning. Meaning, mm-hmm. and is there a crisis of that in our world? I think, I mean, that that question is, is a big reason why I ended up writing my book because there is, there's been, you know, o- over decades now, this rising tide of despair that's been sweeping across our society, but also across the world in general. You know, we see rates of depression and loneliness and anxiety, rates of suicide even uh, rising over the past few decades. And during COVID, unfortunately, a lot of those trends have just accelerated because um, obviously the, the circumstances that we've been in over the last year and a half have, have really taken a toll on people's mental health. Um, and, you know, one of the one of the things that really surprised me as I was doing more research into meaning and, and writing my book was that, you know, when researchers crunch the numbers to try to understand what's going on, like what's driving this rising tide of despair, often what they find is that it's the result of a lack of meaning in people's lives, not a lack of happiness. 
Um, so I think our culture sends this signal and the signal, it, it, it sends the signal that, you know, we should pursue happiness and be happy and feel happy. And that signal is ever so strong now because there is so many people in despair and there is this, you know, it makes sense to think that, oh, if you're unhappy or sad or lonely, the solution is to make yourself happy. But actually what this research shows is that, well, what people might need, the reason why they might be suffering isn't because of happiness, but because there's, you know, what Viktor Frankl called this existential vacuum, this kind of emptiness that can only be filled with meaning. And that once you fill it with meaning, um, then, you know, a sense of contentment and ease and peace and, and fulfillment will, will follow. Uh, Frankl said, yeah, I just, just one more thing. Frankl, uh, Frankl, Viktor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor is, is one of the thinkers who's, who's really influenced my thinking. And he said that, you know, happiness can't be pursued. It must ensue. It's the result of leading a meaningful life. Mm-hmm. Happy, happiness must ensue. Mm-hmm. Because really, happiness, in, in, in my research, mm-hmm. goes back to one of the biggest pillars in my book. Is called, it's something called core pursuits, which are mm-hmm. pursued is a derivative of pursue, which is a de- derivative of a, a, uh, a purpose in your life. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is it's very much tied to that. But why do you think in a, in a world that's technically better than it's ever been, right? Technically in almost every yeah. category, wealthier, safer, cleaner, um, on a macro level, we, but we do see all of these issues. Why do you think it is? I think the way that I understand it anyways, I mean, I think it's a really complicated question and probably lots of different answers. But, you know, if you if you take the kind of long view of history over the last, you know, decades, even a hundred or so years, so many of the structures that gave our lives meaning, that provided society and individuals with meaning, have gradually kind of fallen away as being default sources of meaning in people's lives. And so I'm thinking about um, religion. Uh, you know, most people kind of had their lives grounded in some kind of religious practice. You know, going way, way back, um, you know, our ancestors kind of saw the world as, as an enchanted place. And, and that was a source of meaning because if you see, you know, the divine or the sacred everywhere, then that, that infuses everything with this higher sense of meaning. Um, so I think the, as society has become more secular, um, and disenchanted, there's been this accompanying sense of like, you know, angst and feeling of being unmoored um, because, you know, that, that they're just, you know, it, that religion is kind of a, a really, it, it, it offers a very kind of profound sense of meaning to many people. I think um, in, in a similar way, communities have been dissolving. There's been, you know, a, a decline in community life a rise in kind of individualism, hyper-individualism. Communities are really profound source of meaning for, for people. Um, and just the, you know, traditions and rituals, other sources of meaning that again, are no longer kind of structure our days and our lives the way that they used to. And so, um, a lot of people are left. I, th- I would argue that they're, that the yearning for meaning is still there, but the ways to satisfy it aren't as clear. And so people are left with the yearning and uncertainty about how to fill it. Um, and our culture sends all kinds of problematic messages about how you can fill it. You know, you can fill it with pleasure or money or status. Um, and so people chase those things hoping that they'll fill up that existential vacuum, but, um, but, but they don't, of course. 
Wow, you really have me thinking here. It's like the void is so deep and money is an answer in pleasure is just shallow, right? It's, it's just, it's not a, it's not about, it's not as nearly as impactful or deep as religion and in the enchantment of the world and our communities and traditions and rituals. I even think of, you know, I think of a hundred years ago, so many of us literally were farmers and we were literally mm-hmm. creating the food that we survived on. I mean, I think about that and I think about, wow, that, that's meaning for a lot of people. It's like, oh, I've got to raise my cattle and I've got to, I got to literally provide. And today it's a little harder to connect the dots. We still provide, we go out into a different far, a non-agricultural world, right? And we earn and we, and then we go back and we provide, but it, maybe it's a little less connected to the, the meaning of what we're really doing. Maybe that's a, maybe that's a whole nother interview. So, but thank you for that, because I, I think that is a complicated question. And, um, I don't know if I've ever had anybody put it quite like that, but you're right, decline in religion in, in America. I actually have a chart in my book about faith and uh, how happy retirees actually do tend to attend. They, they have higher church attendance than unhappy. And I remember as I was researching this, seeing that the you know 72% of America used to go to church on a regular basis back in the 70s. And now it's sub 50%. That's a really significant trend. Yeah, that absolutely. That is persistent. So, absolutely. Yeah. And then really religious practices also on the decline, like prayer and, and things like that. And those, you know, it's not just religious belief that gives meaning, but it's doing those things that help you feel connected to something higher. Mm, rituals. Yeah. Religion. So, so let's go to your four. So, Emily, I love this. To go, so, tell me about your four pillars. Of meaning, let's do an let's do an overview of the four first. Mm-hmm. So um, I, you know, the the question of like how can we live with more meaning? I, you know, for my book, I interviewed a lot of people to figure out what makes our lives meaningful. I looked at the research, and what I ended up finding is that there were these themes that would come up in what people told me, uh, and in the research, and in particular, there were four things that. Um, people would talk about when they talked about what made their lives meaningful, either to me or to researchers. And um, I call these the four pillars of meaning in my book. So the first one is belonging or being in relationships where you feel valued and, and like you matter and where you, you, you value and treat the other person like they matter. Um, a purpose or some goal or principle that organizes your life um, and that involves making a contribution to the world in some way. Uh, transcendence, and that's those kind of spiritual ritual experiences that we were talking about before, things that we do that help us feel connected to a higher power, um, to, to the sacred. Uh, and finally, storytelling. And this is really the narrative, uh, the, the way I'm using storytelling, I mean the narrative that you create about your life, about how you became the person that you are today. Wow. Well, okay, so let's go into how these pillars kind of work together to help people find meaning. So, and maybe spend just a minute or so on each one of these. So belonging, this is, so what is, tell me a little bit more about belonging. So, um, you know, I think we all, or I hope that, you know, we all know that relationships are important for well-being. That's one, you know, one of the most, you know, replicated and reported upon finding within psychology. And, um, but belonging is, is about a particular kind of relationship, one where you're valued for who you are intrinsically and, and where you value the other person for who they are intrinsically. 
And it's not like it just can exist in relationships and not exist in others. You could have a relationship, you know, to a spouse or a parent or even a close friend that actually isn't defined by belonging. You know, you're valued for uh, what you're willing to do or, or, or how you look or in the case of gangs and cults for who you, who you hate and, and, and the violent acts that you'll do. Um, and, and not for who you are. So, um, so, you know, belonging can exist in any relationship if you're willing to cultivate it with another. And it's a choice that you can make. You can choose to cultivate it with other people too. So you're saying belonging isn't necessarily belonging is. So the gang example is, is a version of belonging because they, or not, because it's not, they don't love you for who you are intrinsically. Well, I think that a lot of people are drawn to gangs and other harmful groups because of the promise of belonging. Um, but I would argue that those kinds of organizations deliver a cheap form of belonging because if mm. you don't do, you know, what they want, um, you're, you're kind of shunned, you know, so you're not really valued for, for who you are as a person, but, um, for your allegiance to the group. Mm, okay. Yeah. So gang belonging, it's, that's belonging, but it's a very shallow, cheap way to do it. And it's not sustainable and it's not going to lead to meaning. Okay. Um, then what about then? So let's go to purpose, which of course I totally absolutely believe in where this is the, some sort of principle in your life. And then you're going to have some sort of contribution to the world. So tell us about purpose. Yeah, I think purpose is is the is the pillar that people most associate with meaning, and it's um, the it, you know it's the way that psychologists define it is as this yeah this this kind of overarching life goal or, or value that you know leads you into the future, kind of motivates you. It, it's your why, you know, the thing that gets you up in the morning. Um, and it can come in all shapes and sizes too. I think a lot of people think, oh, you have to find your capital P purpose or your capital C calling in order to have purpose in life or in your work. Um, but that's not true. You know, I, I spoke to a lot of people who said, I find great purpose in, in raising my children. Um, I spoke to a hospital cleaner who was part of this larger study uh, being conducted at a hospital in the Midwest about meaning at work. And she said, my purpose is healing sick people. Um, so you know, the, there are different ways and very local ways that we can find purpose in addition to those grander ways that some people do tap into. When it comes to our folks, so again, we're the Retire Sooner podcast and we think of, uh, so, so many folks are, are getting to a point where they can financially no longer work. And we know that work is a huge contributor to purpose. So it's a real void when we get into our next phase. W what do you see older individuals, or not even older, but let's say, someone in the second, third phase of life, is it harder to find your, I, I think that there's the different, you're saying it doesn't have to be this capital C calling and P, capital P purpose. It can be a lot of different things and maybe more subtle, but what do you see maybe for folks in, 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 in latter phases of life? How do they still have purpose? Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a great question. And I think one important thing to understand with purpose is that at different phases of our lives, our, our purpose can change. And mm -hmm. there, there will be transition periods where we have to kind of, we might have to uh, give up one source of purpose and then there'll be a vacuum. And in that transition, it might, it might feel hard. You might feel empty and unmoored, but the task is to kind of find another source of purpose. So I'm thinking of, you know, 
people who do retire. So work is no longer a part of their lives the way it was before. So what's going to fill that void? Or people who become empty nesters, their, their kids aren't there anymore as a source of purpose. At least they're not there as, as much. Um, and so what fills that void? And you see a lot of people uh, adopting new roles um, when those old roles have gone away. So, so maybe they'll volunteer in their communities or, or they'll take up a, a second job that, you know, pursuing what they really wanted to pursue, you know, all along, becoming a teacher or an artist or, or um, a docent at a museum or something like that. Um, so, yeah, so, so there are these different ways that you can fill that void. And that's what I see people doing in these later stages of life. And there, you, you, may, you may know about this organization already, but there's a great organization called Encore, which is all about helping people find purpose in the second half of their lives after they've retired. And, and the, I spoke to a couple of people who were part of the Encore program. And, you know, they, you know, one, one woman started volunteering in prisons. Um, another, uh, became, another who was a police officer began doing a kind of art for museums and, and things like that. So, you know, they, they found other ways to, to kind of give back to society. Me- mentoring the young was another really big theme that came up again and again. I need to interview the folks too from Encore. I love that. I love yeah. that as an idea. Yeah, that's em- a great organization. Emily, tell me about transcendence before we do storytelling. Again, this one to me, this one is the most far out for me to kind of wrap my head around. What do you what is that for our audience? What is the transcendence part? Sounds cool. What do you yeah. mean by it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and maybe, you know, what what I'm really talking about are kind of experiences of you know, awe and wonder or, or moments where you feel connected to something sacred. Um, and maybe you don't even, you wouldn't even call it something sacred, but it's a moment where you kind of feel a sense of, of peace and, and stillness. And, you know, re- re- religious ritual is a way that a lot of people access transcendence, praying, meditating, singing in a choir. Um, but there are secular ways as well, you know, going to an art museum and you know, viewing, having an encounter with something really beautiful that, that touches you deeply, listening to music, um, you know, d- dancing, you know, in a collective. Mm-hmm. These, and what all of these experiences have in common is that they, um, they turn down the volume on your kind of small self, on your ego, so that you can kind of emerge and, you know, experience life in a different way. Um, mystics say that, you know, you come into contact with a reality that feels more real than reality itself. Um, and so I know that that can, that might be a little Sounds abstract. Fun to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, anyone who's ever kind of, you know, done mindfulness meditation and has even for a minute been able to like come into the present moment might know what I'm, you know, what I'm talking about here. It's, you know, your anxieties kind of go away and you get a, a, a better perspective on, on things. I mean, an example might help. So, um, one of the studies that I write about in my book, had students go up and look at these eucalyptus trees that were 200 feet tall just for a minute. So they kind of trying to induce an experience of awe and wonder in them. And, you know, what they found was that when they kind of came back from that experience, their, their perspective shifted. So instead of, um, being so self-focused, they became more other focused, more likely to help other people. Um, so that kind of, that's, that's the prototypical transcendent experience. You have some kind of encounter with something higher that, fills you with awe and wonder or, or helps you get in touch with something bigger. And then you come back from it and your values are a little, are a little different, a little bit more outward oriented. Um, mm-hmm. 
You know, it's gonna. I'm gonna go back to this. May sound. You know what it is for me. It's being totally immersed in a George Strait concert. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's why. I don't know what it is. It's uh, it, you can find that to your point. This transcendence in a lot of ways, right? Awe and wonder and yeah. f- something. It can be religious or a religious like experience where you're just totally transported. Yeah, and it, maybe that's why people do love music so much. It has the ability to do that. And if you end up in a in a let's say this wonderful scenario if you're surrounded by it and you're seeing and again I've, I've seen studies around music as well where you literally can have higher levels it, it maybe this is a, a easier version so if you're out there listening and you're thinking well, it's going to be hard for me to find a eucalyptus tree find on wonder maybe i can just go to my very favorite concert sit in the front row and be transcendent so i'm just trying to make it easy for people all right so and then, and then I love this next one. And is is again? These are so unique. The way you t- the, these pillars story storytelling. Yeah. So storytelling. Um, you know, we all. I, th- I think we don't necessarily realize this, but we all have like an ongoing narrative in our minds about how we became the person that we are today. You know, what explains the events in our lives when things happen to us, good or bad. How do we interpret that? How do we make sense of that? And, uh, you know, the act of storytelling itself is a meaning making act because you're kind of taking your disparate experiences and bringing them together into a, into a coherent whole. Um, but the, uh, but, but there, but there's kind of an additional layer of meaning that can be added when you tell a story that is, you know, more hopeful. A lot of times people can tell stories that are, you know, negative and, and holding them back in some way. Like, you know, I'm no good. I'm always failing. People don't like me. Um, you know, you, you kind of collect your experiences and you say, Oh, based on all these things, you know, I am awful. Um, and a lot of people tell that to tell a story like that to themselves or my life is awful. Um, but we, we know that, you know, people who are leading meaningful lives tend to tell stories about their lives that are, have more positive themes. And in particular, um, the themes of redemption, growth, and love, uh, one researcher, Dan McAdams, has found to be associated with a meaningful life. Um, and so a lot of, you know, what psychotherapy does, for example, is trying to get people to shift their, their narratives or from, you know, that more negative self-concept, life concept to something a little bit more positive and, and hopeful and helpful. That might be the title of this podcast today, Redemption, Growth, and Love with Emily Esfahani Smith, right? Is there any one of these that is the most important or can you, are they all, you kind of have to have all these together, Emily? I don't think you have to have all of them in order to lead a meaningful life. And, and, and most people, you know, when they, when you ask them what makes your life meaningful, they talk about their relationships and belonging and community. So I think for most people, th- those are belonging is, is the strongest, most important pillar. Um, but I would, I would add that the more pillars you have, probably the stronger your sense of meaning is. And, the more protected you are against depression and, and anxiety and despair when one of the other pillars, you know, becomes less strong for whatever reason. Like if you are retiring or transitioning out of some form of purpose and that pillar isn't there strongly, but your belonging pillar is still there for you to lean on. So, you know, I think that the more pillars you have, probably the better, but you don't need to have them all. So they, these also help you overcome adversity too. So if you yeah. have multiple of these pillars, 
it, it, it helps you bridge difficult periods of time in, in your life to some extent. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, me, having a sense of meaning in life is one of the most important predictors of, of resilience. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, if you think about your yourself as like a building or, or um, you know, having meaning is like that that scaffolding, that architecture that can withstand the earthquake. Um, and so the stronger that scaffolding is or scaffolding is probably not the right word, like the bones of the building, um, yeah, then the, the stronger, yeah, the foundation, the yeah. yeah, then the more likely you are to weather that earthquake well. And then where do you find it? So I guess this would be the, uh, the, the more of a practical thing for our audience. If you haven't found meaning or you haven't found it, I guess to some extent you can start by thinking about any one of these and you could say, look, if you don't, if you're struggling in any of these categories, belonging is the most important, but you could you can start with any of these to some extent, but it seems like a lot of people, to your point, in the world have a lack of meaning. So where do we start? How do you educate? Like, what would you tell the world if you did a TED Talk to the world? Where would you find it? Before you answer that real quick, how hard is it to do those TED Talks? <laughs> it was pretty hard. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was hard. It was... Um, you know, I was, I hadn't, I didn't have a whole lot of experience public speaking at, at the time. I've had a lot more now. And so, um, it was, it was really, it, it was a challenge, it challenged me and, and it was a growing experience, I would say, but one that, um, one that was also a great experience too. Was that just like a one take, one take? Yeah, but yes. Yeah, so yeah, they, you know, they have you come out and it's live. Um, but I did, you know, practice, you know, beforehand and everything. So I think that helped. I love it. You say that as if, well, I did practice. <laughs> it's like, how do you get a talk into 20, you know, in, into yeah. 17 minutes? Like that in itself takes yeah. a lot of work to condense everything down. Yeah. It, for and sure. you did an amazing job. So Thank the, you. and you don't have to do it again because it just lives online. <laughs> and you probably have, I'm 100,000 people a day watch it. The, so go back to my last question here. So where do we find this, Emily? Yeah. So in my, in my book, The Power of Meaning, I write, I tell a lot of stories of, of people who are finding meaning in different ways, uh, in, in the world today. And I think from, from their stories, one lesson that I, I have taken away is that, you know, you don't have to do something extraordinary to lead a meaningful life. You don't have to kind of leave your job or, you know, move to a monastery, but that meaning exists in kind of small moments. So it's, you know, the c- connection that you have with, the barista, you know, who's, who's making your coffee, you know, that can be a moment of belonging. If you guys, if you kind of pay attention and you're both tuned into each other, um, you know, if, if you have kids and recognizing that that is a really powerful source of purpose, then every interaction that you have with your child or children could, you know, be a place where you find purpose and build that pillar for transcendence, you know, being out underneath a starry night sky being on a walk and taking a moment to just recognize the beauty around you. Um, I think all, you know, th- those are ways that we can kind of just come into contact with awe and, and feel connected to something bigger. So um, storytelling, you know, journaling or just reflecting on your life and, and, you know, what were the key moments? How did they shape you? What did you lose from them? What did you gain? That's a little bit more that that might not be as, um, you know, that that's the storytelling is a process that takes a little bit more time, I would say. But still, all of these pillars are accessible to, to all of us. Um, and I think that's what one of the really hopeful messages um, about meaning and, and that I try to convey in my book. Well, and the last question I'll go, this is something that I've either heard you talk about or written about. And that's the wisdom of George Eliot, who says that 
you know, people that keep the world going in small yet indispensable ways as a way to maybe reframe maybe how we look at our, our lives and maybe how we look at the meaning that we have. Uh, what, what's, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a beautiful quote, Elliot. It, it's the very, you know, last few lines of her novel, Middlemarch. And uh, the novel is about this young, well, it's about a lot of things, but, you know, the, the main character is this young woman who really has a desire, this passion to kind of lead a meaningful life and do something extraordinary. Well, she ends up leading, you know, an ordinary life. And, but the lesson that she learns is that that can be meaningful because, you know, each of us have some role to play in the world and that role that we play you know we have the capacity to kind of move things forward in a small way um and and recognizing that that we each are um you know elliot says the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts so these small mm -hmm. things that we do that contribute to the good of the world that's a place that we can all look to for meaning mm. what's next for you emily are, have you, are you writing any new books doing any more research or yeah, I, I am. So I'm working Besides on a new... Besides just having a baby. You can raise a human, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So yeah, so, so so theoretically, I am working on a new book um, that uh, is about this kind of the success culture and how um, conventional ideas of success can, can really limit us and kind of asking if there's a deeper way to think about success. So that's, that's the next mm. project. Yeah. Mm. Awesome. Well, it has been a, a pleasure and an honor to be able to, to sit with you and, and, and go deep into, or a little deeper into what such a powerful message and study that you do, which is this power of meaning. Well, it's literally the title of your book, the power <laughs> of meaning that you've wanted to study since you were really, it sounds like a kid. And you've been able to do it, and you've had success doing so. And I think that there's a lot we can take away from today's interview with you and a lot we can think about to increase uh, or make better, let's say, our journey towards finding meaning and having deeper meaning. And just, I think, focusing on having the, the, the understanding the importance, it, the, how absolutely it, it's a it's – a, it's a 100% essential. It's not a maybe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the focus on it in itself may be of help to a lot of people to begin with so i hope so so thank you thank you emily thank you for thanks for having me it's great talking to you hey y'all this is mallory with the retire sooner team please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend if you have any questions you can find us at westmoss.com that's w-e-s-m-o-s-s.com you can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. This podcast is provided to you as a resource for informational purposes only and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. It is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment or financial planning considerations. Please refer to the full disclosure in the podcast description for any additional information.